Ocean Calls. Hello and welcome to Ocean Calls, the podcast making waves on our blue planet. I'm your host, Euronews science reporter Jeremy Wilkes. In our previous episodes, we spoke about the surprising changes to marine ecosystems as Greenland melts and the importance of sharks to our oceans. If you haven't listened to those episodes, scroll back and give them a whirl. We have some really fascinating debates there. And this time, we're asking if marine protected areas are working as they should. In theory, these areas allow us to protect the ocean from human activity, conserve nature and support the local economy. They should be a win-win for everyone. Since they closed the Yabuka pit, the fish around it have grown bigger. Look at this Hague. We're catching big ones like these quite often now. In the past, it was rare. There, you hear a happy fishmonger in Croatia, where setting up a well-managed marine protected area has allowed the recovery and sustainable exploitation of healthy fish stocks. But that MPA success story is an exception. Many marine protected areas around Europe are criticised for being so-called paper parks. Meaning they exist on a government map, but there's little policing, not enough cash, management resources are lacking and destructive activities like trawling, which is basically using an enormous net to collect everything that swims, are still allowed. So are marine protected areas working and what can we do to improve them? To discuss that question, I'm joined by our two guests. Joachim Claudet, a senior researcher and ocean advisor at French research organisation CNRS. Hello, Joachim. Hello. And Purification Canals, the president of MedPan, which is the network of marine protected area managers in the Mediterranean. Hello, Puri. Hello. And at the end of the episode, we have our regular ocean favourite segment, when a famous person tells us about their favourite ocean species. In this episode, we hear from Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of campaign group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, also known as PETA, telling us all about a very special fish. It's a fabulous story worth waiting for. Joaquim, incidentally... We discovered, after we'd identified you as an important person to talk to, that you're actually related to our editor-in-chief. Can you explain? Uh, yes. Sophie Claudet is uh, my sister. <laughs> so our boss is your sister? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a, I mean, this is just such a, like, an extraordinary coincidence. It is. It is. Uh, anyway, we won't let that cloud our judgment. Thanks for being with us on Ocean Calls. I just want to start with a... A pleasant question, I suppose, about marine protected areas. Have you got a favourite, Joachim, have you got a favourite marine protected area? Uh, I guess, yes, for various uh, professional and, and professional reasons, but the, maybe my favourite one, it's called the Cerber Banyuls Natural Marine Reserve. So it's a it's an MPA, uh, marine protected area, so we, we call it MPA, uh, very close to, to Perpignan, south of France, so close to the Spanish border in the Mediterranean Sea. What's it actually like when you go there? Do you go there regularly? And if so, what do you do? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I don't go there 
as regularly as I was doing before because I'm, I'm, I'm too busy with, with other stuff. But uh, when you go there and you enter the, the marine protected area, you see the Mediterranean Sea as it might have been before. It's full of fish and full of big fish. And as soon as you go outside of it, you see the, the Mediterranean Sea as most of the people are used to see with very few fish and very small ones. Puri, do you have a favourite MPA? Uh, well, I have several, but maybe the one I will mention, I think, is uh, the National Park of Cabrera in the Balearic Island, because uh, this is a special MPA. It's one of the few that is not only coastal and has huge surface of pelagic ecosystems. And when we look at the distribution of MPAs in the Mediterranean, one of the challenges is to take care of those ecosystems that are far away from the coast. What's it like when you go there? Do you feel that you're in a protected area? Well, first of all, I think the main advantage is that since this is a, a little, a small island, it is not in the main island. It's not Mallorca. If you are in Mallorca, it's very crowded. So, but to arrive there, there is um, already a process of uh, being apart from the crowd um, and the tourist uh, dynamics. And when you are there, you feel as in the old Mediterranean, it's like the time never pass when you you are in the waters. The waters of this area are so transparent that really when you just go there, it's it's amazing. Joaquin, when did MPAs as a concept emerge? Is it kind of a 20th century invention? Yeah, so the, the protected areas on land existed for already quite some time. They started in the US uh, with the Yellowstone uh, Park. But then it's after World War II, where fishing had to stop in the northern Atlantic, that people realized that uh, fish stocks were in a much healthier state than they were before, while people were thinking that marine resources were inexhaustible, that it was possible to fish and fish and fish, and there would still be fish in the sea to be fished. They started to realize it was not the case, so it was after the World War II and beginning in the, the 50s and the 60s. So inside marine protected areas, there is more diversity, fish are bigger, there is more fish, so the whole ecosystem is healthier. So both fisheries benefit and socioeconomic benefits because the fish that are bigger and more abundant inside the MPA, they can, what we call, spill over the, the MPA boundaries, the marine protected area boundaries, contribute to fishing and attract tourism and make the whole ecosystem around the MPA in a more healthy state. What you're describing sounds like a protected area. I mean, obviously, the clue's in the name, marine protected area. Yes. But as, as, yeah. as far as I've understood, there is a massive problem with enforcement, that these are not areas with a load of kind of nature police um, sailing around them, making sure that nobody goes in there and, and, and messes yes. around with ecosystems. And, and if I may, the, the, the problem is a bit more vicious than just the problem of enforcement. So all the, the scientific evidence backed up how those tool, conservation tool, could be effective. Uh, and then in policy discussions at, for example, the CBD, so the Convention on Biological Diversity, where countries, states go together and decide on what they should be doing all together to contribute to more effective biodiversity conservation globally. Uh, because of all that, they decided to go for more marine protected areas because this scientists showed how effective they could be. And so they agreed first to cover coastal and marine waters by 10% of MPAs 
in 2020, but now the target is 30% of marine protected areas in 2030. This was backed up by scientific evidence once again. But the problem is to achieve those targets, many countries established a lot of very large marine protected areas that have protected only the name. And very often, it's not a problem of lack of management, while it can be, but very often, some MPAs are managed. They have a budget, they have staff, they do consultancies among different ocean users. So the fishers, they talk with the divers, the divers, they talk with the sailors. They receive schools, they do advocacy. So they do nice work. They do monitoring. So they count how many fish they are. They control the water quality, etc. So they are managed. But they don't have regulations that forbid or restrict human activities that can have an impact on biodiversity. So in many managed marine protected areas, trawling, which is the most damaging fishing activity at sea, is not regulated. So you can just go and trawl in an um, MPA exactly. off the coast of France and nobody's going to bother you. Exactly. And on the paper, it's not because it is not managed. Because this is not forbidden. It is just that the regulations are not in adequacy with what is supposed to be the objective of a marine protected area, which is the conservation of biodiversity. Let's bring in Puri on, on this. Do you agree with this picture that Joachim is, is painting of a kind of twisted system, actually? I, I agree with what Joachim said, but I would like something that I think is relevant. Uh, you can have uh, all those different objectives for MPAs, but if the number of MPAs on the surface is too small, the results will not be good enough. So you mean having a couple of square kilometres around a particular reef or something yeah. or particular habitat doesn't make any sense? Is that what you're uh, no, no, it makes sense locally, but it doesn't change globally. It, it makes sense locally, uh, a reef in front of a, of a city, it makes sense to protect. But you cannot think that because you are protecting this uh, small reef, you are having a huge impact in the Mediterranean. So uh, there is a factor here that is very important, which is connectivity. And, you, and to guarantee connectivity, you need to have big surfaces in those MPAs. And most of the MPAs in the Mediterranean are really, really small. So I'm not saying that doesn't have any impact. They have some impact, but much less than what they could have. And if you have a small MPA and you allow a lot of activities, it's very difficult. It seems to me that there's a couple of different things coming in, though. There's that you're talking about the size, which was possibly fixed by the 30% of uh, marine areas protected by 2030 goal. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the quality. So there's the enforcement and making sure that you can't go trawling and whatever through those areas. What do you think about that? Yeah, it, it's, it's both elements. So I really think that in most cases, it's good to have MPAs with a strong involvement of the local communities. And often those communities are practicing activities such as fishing for a long time. I'm, I'm not against this, I think it's good, but then the regulation has to really be strong and has to be properly applied because otherwise mm, the MPA is just a paper park. We need to have MPAs that are strictly protected and nothing can be done. We need to have MPAs in which you can allow some other activities, but this has to be put at the right size, at the right size, and taking care of the connectivity. So this systemic approach is what is missed today in the systems of MPAs. 
Did you know that as of today, MPAs cover only 12% of the European Union seas, and less than 1% are strictly protected? I want to go back to something you talked about, which was engaging local communities. And often in conversations about these sorts of things, we hear that terrible word in English, stakeholders, <laughs> which basically means people who are generally interested by this or have some activity in it. <laughs> who are the stakeholders in MPAs? Who are, who are the key characters who are in there trying to influence how decisions are taken? Yeah, the key stakeholders are mainly, first, I would say the, the, the fishermen, the fishers' communities, not only men, the, the community includes men and women. So these communities, then, I will also say, especially in the Mediterranean, the tourist sector is one of the key stakeholders, but also the, the divers. But then you've, you've also got newcomers like the wind industry, right? And yeah. uh, not only the, the, the ones who are fixed to the bottom, but also the floating wind guys are uh, starting to get in big scale as well. And they're going to want to go in those areas too, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. That's one of the main challenges today is that there are more and more expectations of exploitation of the marine environment. And this opens uh, the, the door to other sectors that traditionally were not there. So when we talk about the energy sector, initially we were thinking on the energy sector, mainly on gas and oil extraction. Yeah, those are still there. But now they are newcomers, such as you say, these wind farms. Can they exist in a, in a marine protected area? Um, could you have a marine protected area that was also a wind farm? Joaquim? Yes, yes. In, in, in the EU and elsewhere, but... Uh, especially in the EU, MPAs can involve any kind of activities. I would like to stress something about this um, coexistence of MPAs with uh, wind farms. So for me, it doesn't make any sense to produce clean energy by destroying or affecting marine ecosystems. I'm saying it's not the case everywhere. Um, there are places which may be compatible. But in general, my advice will be put the wind farms outside MPAs. Because, uh, you know, one of the um, principles for the conservation is to ensure the resilience of the ecosystems. And the resilience is directly related with the reduction of the pressures. In a, if an ecosystem, you are adding more and more different pressures, I don't say pollution, uh, bottle trolling, uh, fishing, uh, disturbance by noise, whatever, at the end, the final resilience of those ecosystems is going to be reduced. Even if you consider each of them individually as not very dangerous, when you add all together, and then you have a ecosystem that is not ready to adapt to the new changes that may require. But surely we have to be realistic. I mean, we've only got a certain amount of space, and if we can mix up the use in a sustainable way, surely that's a better way forward. Um, Joachim? Yes, sure. And, and I fully agree with you that uh, everyone should have its word and everyone should use the ocean, etc. But l let me give you a few numbers. So in the Med, Mediterranean Sea, when we count all the marine protected areas, including those that have no management, no regulations, etc., 6% of the Mediterranean Sea is covered by some form of MPA. But when we look at how much restrict fishing, we go down to 0.06%. So in only 0.06% of the Mediterranean Sea, fishing is not allowed. So I believe there is space a little bit to give to marine conservation. 
Why are the people who say what you're saying, why are you not winning the argument at the moment? Because you sound pretty convincing to me and your numbers are pretty shocking, actually, as well. Why is that message not getting through? Or do you think it actually is getting through now? Puri? The problem is that we don't look at things in a systemic uh, manner. So that's one of the key problems. And the other one, from my point of view, is that we are reluctant to change. That's a characteristic of the humans. So in general, everything that demands us to change our routines is a big effort. So maybe we need to work in addition of the biological sciences to provide all those uh, arguments that uh, Joachim uh, told. We need to work also with the social sciences and psychologists to understand why are so reluctant to understand the facts and from those facts, change. Did you know that in March 2023, after decades of negotiation, the UN endorsed an agreement to protect biodiversity on the high seas? The so-called BB&J Treaty, that's for biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, is considered the most significant deal of its kind since the Paris Climate Agreement. So, the United Nations has now got this deal the High Seas Treaty, everybody calls it, to try and protect the oceans. Does this new deal actually have any impact, implications? What are the implications for marine protected areas? Yeah, there are very strong implications because now there is the legal framework uh, soon because it has just been concluded, it has to be... Uh, uh, ratified. Uh, ratified, etc. Once it would be implemented, the, the treaty, there would be a BBNJ COP, so Conference of the Party, so it gives the legal framework to potentially declare, designate, implement, and actively manage marine protected area in those areas beyond national jurisdiction, which was just not possible before. So, so the in the high seas. In the high seas, exactly. So the treaty in itself doesn't create any marine protected area, but it just gives the tool to create marine protected area. So it will take time. But, but the high seas are two-thirds of the ocean, half of the planet. Mm. So now we can look in more coherence, more comprehensively at the ocean all at once by creating MPAs in those areas. Puri, a lot of um, environmental and conservation groups were claiming a success with the high seas treaty. What's your view on it? Well, I think this treaty could never be approved without a lot of uh, support from the civil society. That's for sure. So first, for me, it's to acknowledge the importance of science. So without the information that the science sector provides, it will have been very difficult to understand the need to do. So this is the first step. And then, obviously, the pressure of the NGOs and other organisms. But also many countries, the last years, uh, more and more countries have been sensitive governments about the importance of establishing this treaty. And, Do you think they yeah, finally think it's a vote winner? We were yeah, cynically I, I, talking about... Yeah, I think about... there are more and more that becomes to understand that this is something to take into consideration. I, I don't know how deep they understand the, the process, but they are sensitive and they put in the table as, as an important topic. Mm. I'm wondering, uh, Joaquim, what your views are in terms of what the European Commission is doing to try and help marine protected areas or to kind of rewrite the rules of marine protected areas or try and promote the uh, protection of biodiversity and important um, marine areas as well. What are your views on what the Commission is doing well and not so well? I think things changed recently because before that there was not a strong care 
in what was being done with the tools that were designed at the European level for marine conservation. For example, Natura 2000 sites. Mm -hmm. They were declared as MPAs by countries, but everything was allowed inside them. Very often, there were not even management plan, etc. But then some uh, many scientists have shown how poorly protected they were. And now the EU, for example, for 2030, has a very ambitious target, which is larger than the one that has been agreed for the CBD, because it's 30% of MPAs in 2030, but one-third of those, so 10%, one-third of those need to be strictly protected. So it's the term of the EU. And for the EU, strictly was no fishing, so no extractive activities. Is that even possible? I, I think, if, uh, yes, when, when countries decide something, it's possible, you know. So it's really a question of, of political will, of communication, of recognition of the benefits, of recognition of scientific evidence. Uh, so, yes, I believe it is, it is possible. Yeah, you know, this 30% is a great opportunity to integrate the contributions of many, many people, many people and many sectors. So this should be seen for me as uh, from the government as the opportunity for them to not do it alone, but to work with the society to reach these targets, both the 10% of strict protection and the 30% with a more large uh, approach. Did you know that by expanding the world's MPAs by just 5%, we could increase fish catches by at least 20%? That's 9 to 12 million tons of seafood per year, worth up to 19 billion euros. A kind of a fun question, but one that's coming into my mind. If we switch this all around, imagine that I am, I don't know, some kind of fish who's having a rather nice time swimming around in the Mediterranean, and the area that I live in, the habitat I live in, becomes a designated marine protected area, and it becomes one of these 10% of, of areas that isn't allowed to be fished. What changes? How soon does the environment start to change around me? So it, within the protected area, it goes very fast because once a fish is not being fished, it continues to grow larger because fish, contrary to most animals, they never stop to grow along their age. So if you don't fish a fish, so if you don't kill it, whether even for a good reason, it's good to eat some fish and to live from fishing. But if you don't kill the fish, it grows larger and larger fish produce many, many more eggs than small individuals. It is an exponential relationship. So the more bigger fish you have in an area, the more eggs and larvae you have and the more fish. So it takes from two to three years to see benefits inside a place where you stop uh, fishing. So it is quite fast. What is interesting is also that if you have more, more fish and more species able to reproduce, this larvae may move and reach very far away uh, places that will benefit also from the, the, the MPA. So that's why it's so important uh, look at the, at the whole system and, and identify how protecting strategic spaces might benefit the overall, uh, the overall region. What does a really good marine protected area look like? Paint a picture for where we'd like to be in 2030. What does a really 
good result look like? What do really good marine protected areas look like? Are they no-take zones, uh, nature reserves, or are they areas where you've got quite a few different actors operating together? Um, let's go with you, um, Puri, first. Yeah, I, I think it, uh, a good MPA must have uh, a good zoning that includes all the different aspects of protection from the very strict protection to the areas in which you can allow the activities of people, obviously regulated. So talking about activity doesn't mean that everyone does what he wants. So that means you, to create those MPAs, you need to really work with the, the current situation in a society, motivate people, engage them. So then after the years, you see the benefits when you have the local society, local community in favor, it's more easy that you're reaching the objectives. Joachim? Yeah, to me, a very good MPA, a marine protected area, is a fully protected area, so a place where no extractive activities can happen. So it is a fully protected area that has been declared and is being managed by fishers themselves. So they realize they take benefit from the MPA outside of it. And this fully protected area should lie in an ocean that is 100% sustainably managed. So that's a smart idea. You give the fishers the responsibility of looking after the MPA. Yeah. Does that happen yeah. anywhere? It happens yeah, in, it in places and it is the, the MPA that works the best yeah. because the fishers, they are empowered and they perceive the benefit of the MPA and they became the first defenders of the MPA. And so there is strong incentive for them to forbid poaching from other folks because uh, they benefit from the MPA themselves. I want to say that there are very nice examples of uh, MPAs uh, created and managed by fishermen, and they are really working very well. I'm thinking especially on ones I know in the northwest of Spain, in Galicia, in the Atlantic coast. The MPA of Osminarsos was created by the community of fishermen in Lira, a little village in, in Coruña. And this is really a great example. They are convinced that to protect the resources they need to create a, an MPA. And I think, as I agree, I fully agree with um, Joaquim, this is the, the first community that needs to be motivated to, to protect the sea. If you could declare an MPA today and you had a unilateral power, where would you declare it, Joaquim? So uh, I won't make a lot of, of friends probably, but I would declare the whole high seas as a fully protected area. So no fishing in the high seas. And just so you know, half of the fishing in the high seas is profitable only thanks to subsidies by state. So we don't rely a lot on fishing in the high seas. And I would decide places where fishing and deep sea bed mining and other extractive activities are allowed. I would reverse the, the burden of proof. Yes, yeah, switch the paradigm. Yes, yeah. Um, I imagine that would make you very popular with some people and very unpopular with some other people. <laughs> but it's a great vision. I like it. Puri? That mine is not so different because we should demonstrate when we want to do an extraction, an activity, for instance, we should prove that your activity is not going to damage the, the ocean. And starting by the point that everything is protected, and if you want to do something, prove that you will not create a damage. I think we need to move towards this thinking Obviously, this will not happen in one year, probably not in 10, but it's important to have this in, in view 
because it's the only way to really reach a sustainable ocean. I hope a lot of powerful people are listening to you because those were powerful words from both of you. Thank you. It was really fascinating talking about marine protected areas and what they should <laughs> and shouldn't be. Joachim Claude from CNRS and Purificacial Canals from Medpan. Thanks for joining us on Ocean Calls. Thanks to you. Thank you. Now to the part of the podcast where a famous person talks to us about their favourite ocean animal. In this episode, you'll hear from Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of campaign group PETA, which stands for People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. She's the author of several books, the latest being Animal Kind, which provides fascinating insights into animals as individuals. And she's the subject of the HBO film I Am an Animal, and this is Ingrid Newkirk's story of her ocean favourite. I'm Ingrid Newkirk. I'm the founder of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. As for a favourite species, I really don't have one, but I do think the most overlooked ones are the fishes who live in the sea. When I was writing my book, Animal Kind, I had the joy of being able to research and find out much more about so many different kinds of fish. Well, there were many things that struck me during my research, but the wrasse is a fascinating fish. Most people know that the wrasse cleans bigger fish's teeth and that the big fish actually line up the way we would at a dentist to get their teeth cleaned. But what I hadn't realized is that the RAS passed what is the gold standard of animal intelligence, the mirror test. A lot of tribal peoples in earlier times who were faced with a mirror didn't know what it was and would attack it. But this little fish mastered it very quickly and would stand, or whatever you call what a fish does in front of a mirror, would float in front of the mirror preening herself, just like Kim Kardashian. So she mastered that, but also she was a cooperative hunter and she makes wonderful patterns on the ocean floor. Just fascinating fish. I think it generally the wrasse fish lives its little life. It's not a very big fish. I mean, it's not uh, astonishing like a shark. It doesn't have wonderful colors like tropical fish. It could be described as a rather boring looking little fish, really. But like most fish, it communicates. And what we have found is that if you use sensitive underwater microphones, you pick up the sounds of this little fish. Singing, tweeting, chirping, chirping, just like a bird. And of course, they're very protective mothers and fathers. They like to decorate their own nest, if you will, just some weeds and things they shove between them. And they enjoy the ocean currents, which keep them clean from sea lice and such. And they, they have a life, you know, they talk, they go places, 
They're not like the poor fish in aquariums. And if you ever go scuba diving or snorkeling, you really do get the feeling you're in other people's worlds, that you don't really have any business being there. And I think people, they feel the ocean is a special place. We're drawn to it. We want to go to the beach. We want to swim. We want to be in it or to watch it or to be in awe of the waves, of everything. And yet people will say to me, I'm doing my part. I'm, I'm not using a plastic straw anymore. And I think that's nice. But that is honestly the least you can do because it's all that discarded fishing equipment, commercial fishing equipment that is destroying the oceans, our plastic. Everything is destroying the oceans. And we don't want that marvelous ecosystem to be polluted, to be more polluted, and to become sort of a waste pit. My thanks to Ingrid for that wonderful story in which you heard real sounds of a wrasse fish. And a big thank you to Karen de Jong at the Institute of Marine Research in Norway and Karen Busman from the University of Bern in Switzerland for those sounds. They were recorded as a nest of a male corkwing wrasse as part of Karen Busman's master's thesis. We've linked to her scientific paper in the show description. Ocean Calls is produced by Euronews for ocean fans around the world. I'm your host, science reporter Jeremy Wilkes, and this series is produced by my colleagues Naira Dablashian and Natalia Olsner. The theme music is by Gabriel Dalmasso. Editing and sound design is by Jean-Christophe Marco, and mixing is by Mathieu Duchesne. Our production coordinator is Carolyn Lab, and our editor-in-chief is Sophie Claudet. The Ocean Calls podcast is made possible by the European Commission's Directorate General for Maritime Affairs and Fisheries. You can find out more about our guests by following the links in the description. You can listen to Ocean Calls on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. You can find out more on Euronews.com and watch our sister TV show called Ocean on Euronews.com ocean. It's fantastic viewing. Follow world news from a European perspective on Euronews.com. <laughs>